Good morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 11. We'll be reading verses 45 through 57. This morning we want to talk about blessed irony. Blessed irony. And hopefully as we get into our text, you, you will understand what I mean there by blessed irony. Uh, the last two weeks we've looked at uh, the resurrection of Lazarus, the, the great miracle, many argue one of the greatest miracles of Christ beyond his own resurrection uh, was this miracle of raising Lazarus who had been dead for four days. So what we see in this text this morning is the aftermath of this miraculous sign that Jesus performed. Verse 45, it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what He did, believed in Him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one children, uh, into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they pl- made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let him know so that they might arrest him. Irony. Defined is, there's a few definitions of it. Uh, one, the expression of one's meaning by using language that normally signifies the opposite, typically for humorous or emphatic effect. Two, a state of affairs or even uh, or an event uh, that seems deliberately contrary to what one expects and is often amusing as a result. Number three, and I think probably most clearly pertaining to this text, a literary technique by which the full significance of a character's words or actions are clear to the audience or reader, although unknown to the character. Um, Some examples of situation situation, uh, um, irony is a fire station burning down. A post on Facebook complaining about how useless Facebook is. Uh, The cobbler's kids having no shoes. Those are some 
examples of irony. And, I, and we come to a, a text this morning that I believe is full of irony. And I want to look at three ironies we see in this text this morning. The first one is the irony of seeking self and in the process losing self. Many of the, it says in verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. So, as with most of his signs, he did this sign. And many, you know, grabbing a, a, a big stinking clue that this is not normal for a man to be able to resurrect a man that's been four days, they say, he's real. Like, he really is who he says he is, you, you, you can't just do that. And so many believed. But yet, as with all of his signs, many of them began, or many of them did not believe. And so they went to the, to the, to the people in charge, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees, and let them know what had happened. And so it says in verse 7, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. And so here's what they say. They say, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Okay, so here's the problem. The problem is, is, is it's gotten to the point that even them as the enemies, they can no longer deny the signs of Jesus. Right, maybe early on, like, yeah, you know, I heard about the whole water to wine thing, but you know, they may had some some wine hidden in the back and they brought it out. They just it's a magic trick, right? Or maybe they, they could deny the the walking on the water because that was just his disciples that saw that and that's just his friends telling fables. But as time is going on, the, the signs become more public, more undeniable. And so a man that's been dead for four days being resurrected before tons of witnesses, witnesses that had seen him die, witnesses that had seen his body laid in a tomb and had known that that body had been there for four days, a multitude saw this, and they see Jesus walk up and call him out of the grave. And he came out of the grave. So they could, it was getting harder and harder to deny the signs of Christ. And so you would think at this point they would embrace him. They would embrace and say, surely he is the Christ, or at the very least, just begin to have some self-inspection that, okay, maybe what I'm believing about this man isn't really true, but maybe he is more than I think he has been. But yet they remain totally stiff-necked in their desire to not only refuse belief, but to stop him. And as we will see, they desire to stop him by whatever means necessary. And look at what they're most concerned about in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now to understand what's happening here, you need to kind of understand 
the Jewish relationship with Rome. Okay, yes, they were subject to Rome. Okay, but they, they kind of, Rome was letting them do their thing, right? They were letting them worship, okay, you can, you can worship. Uh, all you really need to do, pay us taxes, pay us our due, and maintain peace. Don't give us any trouble or we got to send soldiers down here to straighten you out. Just, just, just be cool, be be you, you do you, and as long as there's no trub, trouble, we'll let you be you. And so now we have this, this character on the scene, Jesus, and he's, he's preaching, and he's preaching out against sin, and, and he's progressively doing these signs that are harder and harder to deny. There's talk of him being a king, and so they begin to fear that, hey, if, if rebellion happens because of Jesus rallying these people up with hope and kingship and, and all of this, what's going to happen is Rome is going to come in and they're going to take full control of us. They're not going to kind of let us do our own thing. And notice what they say, Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. I mean, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they had it pretty good. They were likely fairly wealthy, and, and life was, was pretty good for a Pharisee or a chief priest. And Jesus threatened their world, right? They threatened that world, that, that, that they were enjoying the comfort that they had, and, you know, let Rome let them do their own thing. They get to be these Pharisees that everyone respects and, and gives money to. And, and, man, life was good, and Jesus threatened that. And the problem is they never stopped to ask that, that maybe Jesus was offering them something better. They simply wanted no disruption of the status quo. They sought self instead of seeking Christ, and unless the resurrection or His crucifixion changed their mind, they died in their sin and they lost their self to eternal wrath. But is this not what sin does? It, it's, it sends us defending what is instead of what could be. It causes the, us to circle uh, the wagons around, around what we've built and say, don't touch this, Jesus. If I, if I come to you, if I trust you, if I pursue you like I should, you're going to be all about this stuff that I really like. Instead of asking is what He is offering better. Please don't miss Christ because you don't want Him to disrupt you. Christ is glorious. And He wants to fill your life and eternity with more joy than you can possibly imagine or build in your little kingdom of self. What you desire to hold on to is nothing compared to what Christ is offering to give you. 
So don't live in the irony of, of trying to seek what is best for self and losing what is best for self and losing Christ. Next, and we see this is really the heart of the irony of this text, is the irony of seeking murder and uncovering the gospel. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. So, so, so Caiaphas, is, the high priest, is, is going to speak up with this evil plant of which he had even prophesied earlier before this event. This is something that Caiaphas has been about this whole time. And his plan or, or prophecy or whatever you want to call it is wretched. We need to kill this man. It is better for an innocent man to die than for our nation to die. We've not been able to shut this man's mouth. We've tried. We haven't been able to do it. We've tried to deny his miracles. His miracles have only gotten bigger. So I see no other option. We have to end him. We have to murder him. However, we need to do it. It needs to happen. And he needs to die soon. And yet as wretched as this plan is, as ill-intentioned as his words were, there was more going on in the words of Caiaphas than he intended. Notice what it says in verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord. God is obviously guiding the tongue of Caiaphas to say much more than Caiaphas' mind intends. The irony here is that the di- this dialogue that is given as anti-God and murderous as this uh, anti-God and murderous plot, when looked at from a different angle, is the very gospel itself, the work of Christ for man. This instance has been called unconscious prophecy. And what, I mean, how amazing does this just show the absolute sovereignty of God that this man who is uttering these murderous threats and and plots against his son is actually preaching the gospel itself. This is the great sovereignty and control of our God over the tongues of even evil men. We see that Caiaphas proclaims the substitutionary death of Christ. It says in verse 50, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for, his, for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nations. So Caiaphas says, let's kill one man so that many men might be saved. It takes no biblical scholar, right, to see the gospel here. Caiaphas saw Rome as the danger, as this great threat to the Jews. But that was not their threat. 
The threat was not some government with great armies coming in and taking over. Their threat was the wrath of God for their sin. Rome with its conquering abilities, it seems so strong, but God laughs at such an army. And pitiful display of strength. Sinful man has the wrath of God headed their way. And that is just. For man has spit in the face of God with their rebellion. They have looked upon a loving Father and have said, no, thank you. I want my own way. I want to do my own thing. And for that cosmic treason, we deserve nothing short than the complete wrath of God. But God, right? But God. Though we deserved His wrath, Ephesians 2.4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, and even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So God in His rich mercy is really in agreement with Caiaphas that it was better for one man to die than for the nation to die. While Caiaphas was motivated by self-preservation, God was motivated out of love. There is no more central doctrine to our faith, folks, than the idea of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That though perfect, And though undeserving of wrath and death and and anything evil, Jesus took on our sin and stood in our place as He experienced the full wrath of God for our sins. So that in turn, He might take His righteousness, His perfect obedience to the Father, and to place it upon us. How amazing is it that that truth is proclaimed here by a godless Jesus hater? We also see here that that Caiaphas proclaims Christ's work to the nations. Look at verse 52. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad again we have what is going on in Caiaphas mind versus what is being decreed by God through Caiaphas's words the Jewish nation longed to to be independent again to be their own people and when that day would come they would be able to bring all the people that have been scattered about back to the nation of Israel and they could be that one nation again all gathered in in one place at with one temple under one God. And Caiaphas' attitude was, if an, if an innocent man needs to die, to make that a reality, then so be it. But once again, his words have a deeper meaning, and once again, it's not 
hard to see it. While Caiaphas had in mind uniting one race back into the family of God, Jesus was about much more than that, right? We've already seen this in John chapter 10, verse 16. He said this, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one uh, flock, one shepherd. And so Jesus has already proclaimed, I'm not just about this flock of, of Jews. I'm about the nations. We see the final results of this in Revelation 7, chapter 9. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every tribe, uh, from every nation, from, every tri- from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Just people from all nations united under Christ because of His work. Folks, the, the world is full of lost people. People who are dead in their transgressions and their sin. And, and they're, that problem is not confined to one nation. It's not confined to one race. But all have been ravaged by the effects of sin and rebellion. And that is why we are a church We are a church that believes in the urgency in global gospel missions. That's one of our values. It's our vision. It's what we pursue to be as a church that has an urgency in global gospel mission of gathering those people together under Christ. Just a a few weeks ago, uh, Tim and Mark uh, went back to Cuba. And do you know what happened they, they baptized eight new believers that had, had come to Christ since November, since the trip in November. Now that's, that's a, a, a work that our church is participating in. Y'all, we're in South Arkansas, a bunch of gun-toting people that live in freedom and say what we want. And we've we've grown up in the Bible Belt, heard the gospel all our life. And in Cuba, here are these people, these eight people, to be more specific, who have grown up under communism, who've had very, very few opportunities to hear the gospel. And, And they're being brought together with us under Christ, even though we're so unlike, and in many ways we're, We're so alike in our sin and in our need for Christ. I was talking to uh, John David Smith, our our BMA missions director, last week, who went on this last trip with Mark and Tim, and he said, Adam, I want you to know something, that Wyatt is involved in a special work down there. He said, that work is poised to blow up. He said, I believe that. And he said, and y'all being a part of this, it's a privilege. And I just want to share that to y'all. We, we are privileged. Amen? In just a couple of weeks, we'll have people from our church going to, to Hodgley Reservation outside of Albuquerque to minister to Indians there and 
We'll have our youth going to Mississippi to share the gospel there. But let us not realize, or let us not forget that all this summer we have neighbors, we have people we work with, we have family members who also need to be gathered under Christ. And so let's be a, a church that's urgent for all the globe from our backyard to the furthest nations of, of, of the earth. I love Ephesians 2.13. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you are, who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, and He has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And we are brought together under Christ as one. And that's our goal, to be involved in that work as a church. And thankfully we are. And we hope to, to be more involved and more involved. This last irony that I want to talk about and, and uh, very, very quickly, and you'll have the message, is this. It's the irony of seeking purification through religious ritual while speaking of the one who truly purifies. Look at verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were looking for Jesus and saying to the one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. So it wasn't a requirement for Passover for you to purify yourself, but just the same many of them did it. They came to go through religious rituals to just kind of pre prepare, to, as it says here, to purify themselves for Passover. And, and the, the irony here to me is that they're sitting there going through these rituals going, think Jesus is going to show? You think he's going to show up? And, and they're talking because many of them have been told by the Pharisees, hey, we've got to let them know if Jesus shows up. And the irony here is that they were seeking purity through relig religious ritual while they were speaking of the one who truly purifies the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9 talks of this. It says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Folks, don't, in irony, look for purification in places that cannot fulfill it. Coming to church, in and of itself, it's not going to purify you. Even saying prayers, as important as that is, it's not going to purify you. Only your belief and your reliance on the work of Christ will purify you. Folks, the gospel is filled with irony. The greatest injustice ever conceived 
and the heart of man brings about justice. The Son of God, as the only sinless man that ever lived, dies a criminal's death. The death of Christ brings about life for us. Evil men who have rejected God are made into the righteous sons and daughters of God. Boy, the Gospel is full of beautiful, blessed irony. I would ask you this morning, would you, would you add to that irony this morning by rejecting it? By having salvation in Christ offered and seen and then just to say, no, thank you. I'm going to pursue self. I'm going to be like the Pharisees. i got my own thing going, and I want to protect that. I, I don't want Christ. Or will you trust Christ and find in that beautiful irony of His death giving you life so that you might believe and have that life that John is writing this book telling us about. I'm going to ask you to please stand as our musicians come. Maybe you need to think about your involvement in this wonderful work of bringing a scattered people under Christ. However God has, has spoken to you through His Word this morning, I would ask that you uh, would respond to Him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank You that even in the words of godless chief priests that the Gospel shines through. God, we thank You for the substitutionary death of Your Son for us. God, we thank You for the work that, that You have done and You continue to do of gathering a people God, help us as a church and as a people to be on the front lines of that. God, I pray that you would move in our hearts to help us not to seek self and to lose ourselves, but to seek you and find everything. Move in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.